Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hello, everybody. It is your co-host, Cyrus, the socialist brother here yet again with uh, my brother, Chase, the Christian brother. Um, We're coming at you uh, originally from being together for the first time in a while, not under the best of circumstances, as we saw a family member off this week. But other than that, we have a big guest for you today, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. But uh, first, Chase, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm feeding Cato here. Yeah, we apologize for the delay in release. Uh, as Cyrus said, had a family emergency. We all uh, bound together and attended to, which we'll get into maybe in the next couple of weeks. Um, having said that, before we really get into our guest, I want to clear up some uh, things from last week. We broached Israel versus Palestine. We had a few people write in, one to encourage us, but also um, to clean up a little bit of what we left out. There was one key point on the, well, on any side, Israeli or Palestinian, that we left out because we sort of thought it was assumed, but it's actually a key point to be considered in context, and that is really the Holocaust. Um, after the Holocaust and after World War II, was, uh, really the Holocaust was one of the main reasons why the international community came together and said, okay, uh, we don't want to see this again. Third largest genocide, I think, from today in world history, at least the one on, on books. And so they said, let's have a Jewish state and, and, and a Palestinian state. And so whenever uh, maybe the Palestinian um, aggressor, you know, language comes out, um, I'm not saying they're always aggressor, but just saying, and they say that uh, the state of Israel is illegitimate. Well, then like, that's where we would go back to in modern times to say, wait a second. Well, there was a reason that the international community came together in the first place to give the Jewish people a home state. Um, and so we left that out and we are sorry. Cyrus, is that is that cleaned up? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it wasn't something that was uh, intentionally left out at all. If anyone was wondering that, it's just something we didn't really uh, think about, didn't uh, think is totally salient to the, the current situation. However, I understand uh, people's complaints about that. And uh, it is something that definitely makes the Jewish state unique among all states because it's, it's, there's no other cases of it that at least come to the top of my mind. Now, that said, we're going to be talking about something totally different today. Uh, we have uh, a domestic politics more oriented episode, but more specifically uh, about the parties, because we have the former uh, 2020 presidential candidate for the American Solidarity Party, uh, Brian Carroll. He was a public school teacher for 46 years. Um, and when he ran in 2020, he was on the ballot as a registered to ride in candidate in 31 states. Um, so picked up a, you know, a pretty decent percentage of votes considering uh, how, how new the party is. And the American Solidarity Party is in the tradition of the Christian Democrats, um, which is a, uh, a much larger political force in other parts of the world, like Europe and South America and elsewhere. Um, and has not really ever been a, a strong formation here in the United States. So I was very curious to, to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, of 
uh, why the party got started in the United States and sort of what their goals are. Would you agree with all that, Chase? Yeah, that's right on. In fact, their symbol is the pelican. So if you see a pelican flag flying, you know um, why. And I think their color is largely orange, yellow. So um, Cyrus, with that, let's get into it. Welcome to the Cross of Gold, sir. I'm glad to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So can you start by giving our listeners a bit of an introduction to the American Solidarity Party and a little bit about where they fall and how they think about their party platform, that sort of thing? Yeah, the uh, American Solidarity Party is rooted in a European tradition that is called uh, Christian Democratic. It goes back both to um, a, a Protestant uh, uh, Prime Minister of Netherlands, uh, Abraham Kuyper, and to the writings of a number of popes uh, in the late 1800s, uh, as the world started to industrialize, uh, the popes realized that uh, industrialization tended to uh, depersonalize the workforce and individuals in it. And, and so they were reacting to that. And then uh, after World War II, especially, uh, European governments were trying to, to steer a path to avoid both fascism on one side and communism on the other side. Konrad Adenauer in, in Germany was one of the leaders of that. And so he came up with the you know, development of, of Christian democracy that is still there. Uh, Angela Merkel is, is from the party that Adenauer founded. And even though Europe is much less Christian, much more secular than it was uh, even 40, 50 years ago, uh, it is the, the political appeal of that remains. It's rooted in, a, uh, in the Abrahamic religions and the morality there. Uh, it is not socialist or communist, uh, but neither is it fascist. Uh, it's a middle ground. And as such, it's very uh, appropriate to our age in the United States where we have uh, extremes at both ends pulling us away from the center uh, we're not exactly a centrist party, but we're certainly more in the middle. We have policies where we agree with the Republicans and policies where we agree with the Democrats. And so that puts us overlapping each of the other parties. And as they can't seem to talk to each other anymore, we're there and we can talk to both sides because we have areas of agreement with both sides. Um, I would say that's probably the most important things about to know about our party. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I mean this in a complimentary way. It almost seems like a bizarro version of the sort of third way centrists, which are just about like splitting the difference between Republican and Democratic policies um, rather than going through and actually deciding, oh, no, this one from this plank is good and this one from this plank is good, not like, well, let's just water down everything. <laughs> yeah, and we tend to be, you know, if you look at the traditional quadrants and you've got 
uh, Democrats in um, a, a strong government uh, social action corner and Republicans in a small government kind uh, of keep your hands off of everything except some social issues, uh, abortion. And, and, uh, and then you've got the libertarians in a small government and don't even look at the social issues kind of thing. We are in the opposite corner from the, the libertarians. Uh, we, not necessarily large government, uh, we want to see appropriate government. Some issues uh, government has no business in. And other issues, you know, for instance, national defense, obviously, uh, federal government needs to handle that. But there are a lot of issues along that continuum where some require uh, much more local government and others are more appropriate to a central government. Uh, and so every different issue we're going to approach differently. We're not going to have a, a pat answer. Uh, you know, you know you, Republicans are, are yelling, you know, everything is, has to be limited government. You know, go back to Reagan's, you know, government is the problem. Uh, government sometimes is the problem, but they're not the problem on everything. And so we want to have uh, an appropriate governmental approach to each issue. That's really fascinating. So how do you guys adjudicate and evaluate um, between, hey, listen, this is one in which government should not be in, and this is one in which we need appropriate government to step in here. And let me ask that. I've got my own confusion backlogging that question. <laughs> well, we we are we actually are a party that that basically was born on Facebook. You know, we have um, lots and lots of internal discussions, and we don't have everybody in agreement on everything. Well, it started in 2011, so less than a decade. Yes, uh, and we had, uh, you know, we did have a candidate in 2011. Um, Obviously, it was a very small uh, effort. We had a bigger effort in uh, 2016. Uh, I think in 2016, we got about a little bit over 6,000 votes. And uh, in 2020, we got over 42,000 votes. So we're growing. Seems like pretty rapid growth right there. I mean, it's about eight or nine. My math, not a big math Seven. guy. Seven, it's okay. Keep going, Brian. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's growing. And uh, that, obviously, that campaign was, was inhibited by, uh, by COVID. Mm. Um, we couldn't collect signatures in a lot of states to even get on the ballot. Uh. For example, in Washington State, uh, where we have a fairly strong team, uh, they, you know, they couldn't, they, they, there was no way they could go out and collect signatures. And so we didn't get on the ballot in Washington. Uh, and, uh, and we feel confident that we would have been pretty successful up there. You know, we think in Washington, we would have easily gotten three or 4,000 votes if we had been on the ballot. Uh, but we weren't on the ballot. And, uh, and 
in Washington, they don't even report how many write-in votes we got. So one county told us the number of write-in votes that we got up there. And that's all we know for Washington. Yeah, you really uh, parties are uh, super disappointed about that happening. Yeah, it seems like you've really got to deal with the perennial uphill battle. Well, I had been a a Republican for 35 years uh, going back uh, to Reagan. Uh, And that was because I was prolonged. And so abortion was not the only issue I cared about, but it was the first issue when I was looking how to vote. And the Republican Party was consistently better than the Democratic Party on abortion. And over the years, I began to have some second thoughts about the economics of it. Uh, Reagan's economic program uh, seemed to encourage uh, a growing distance between the haves and the have-nots. And uh, that concerned me. Um, but there was nothing in the Democratic Party that, con- that attracted me until uh, in the gubernatorial election in California in, in 2010, uh, the Republicans ran a pro-choice candidate, Meg Whitman. And I thought to myself, well, if the Republicans are going to run a pro-choice candidate, then I should look at some other issues. And as I looked at the different issues, uh, there were several where I thought uh, um, the the uh, Jerry Brown uh, was better off, better a better candidate than uh, Meg Whitman. And uh, after four years of him in office, uh, I continue to think that was the case. I think I voted right on that one, but it was the yeah. first time that I didn't vote Republican in in thirty five years. Mm. And then in, um, actually uh, in in 2012, I uh, supported Huckabee and I would have, or let me think, but I would have been uh, 2008 Huckabee and I would have supported Huckabee in uh, 2016 if he had run, Um, but I was getting his daily email and I I began to sour on him, Uh, his, his flat tax, to me was a farce. And, uh, and so when it got to be 2016 and there were like 20 Republican candidates uh, in the race at that point, and I realized there wasn't a single one of them that excited me at all. Hmm. And so I started looking around saying, well, what else is there? And uh, at that point, the, the biggest question was between Bernie Sanders and uh, Hillary Clinton. And I much preferred Bernie over Hillary. So I joined the Democrats long enough to vote in that primary. And then uh, when that was over, when that was over, I thought to myself, all right, nothing good can come out of this election. The the Clinton-Trump election just looked to me like a disaster from any aspect you looked at it, no matter who won. Yeah, that, that good summary. A sizable portion of the population would, uh, if you if you polled Americans during that time, I think would have agreed with you in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and I actually I happened to be back east at the time of the Democratic convention, so I, I took Amtrak up to um, Philadelphia and stood out the outside the convention, and uh, 
I had an opportunity outside the convention. Uh, Jill Stein was speaking. Uh, and uh, so I got to listen to her. And I said, well, this is not the answer. And uh, so I, I came back home and got on the internet and started researching third parties. And when I found mention of the Solidarity Party and read their platform, I said, yeah, this is it. I only had to read it through once and I knew where I, where I belonged. Hmm. And so we got involved in uh, trying to organize uh, the American Solidarity Party in California. And uh, we actually, my wife and I each signed up to be electors. If, if Mike Maturin had carried California, uh, we would have cast California's electoral votes in that one. Oh. And we had a convention in like October and wrote bylaws for the party and everything. And then the question is, all right, if you're gonna be a party, you have to run some candidates. So uh, I thought, well, I ought to run against somebody. Who shall I run against? <laughs> and my congressman is Devin Nunes. Mm. And you may remember that, that he was doing some really ridiculous things uh, at the time. Um, and I thought, well, he's a worthy, worthy target. That so would have been I, an easy choice for me, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in a, uh, you know, fairly religious district, uh, Central California, like you, like you have mm -hmm. rural farming. It's a, it's a conservative district. Uh, there are some, uh, some liberal neighborhoods in Fresno and uh, Tulare and, uh, but it's primarily, it's a, it's a conservative and, and a lot of uh, ranchers and orange groves. Uh, very agricultural, and and he's been the congressperson here since like 2003 or something like that. Uh, so I ran against him. I was still teaching full time, uh, and I was the only member of the party that I was aware of in the district. So it's not like I had a big ground game. <laughs> uh, I had I had no money, uh, no organization. Um, I, I walked in some parades, you know, New Year's and Chinese New Year's and uh, the, uh, you know, the, the different parades that we have, Memorial Day. And, uh, and I took part in some candidate debates. I think maybe there were three of them. Uh, but with no campaign, really, uh, I, I beat the Libertarian. There were, there were six of us in the race. It's California's jungle primary. Uh, and um, got 1.3% and had fun. And so by the time I had gotten involved in that, I realized that I was also uh, putting myself in a position where people would start to say, well, you know, that ought to be our candidate for president. And that was not my original intent, but I could see it coming. I had about um, a year to pray about it. And as I prayed, every time I had a, um, an objection, you know, I can't do it because I'm too old. All right. So <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Briscoes, Stuart and Jill and Pete Briscoe, they have a, a program they're all excellent speakers, uh, preachers. And, uh, and I would catch about 10 minutes of their 
program on my way to work every morning. And so if my, if my complaint that time was, well, I'm too old, well, there was Stuart, who's in his 90s, preaching uh, about how, you know, Christians never retire. You, you, you move on and, and you yeah, do Amen, it. hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Moses was 80 when he started. And, uh, and so no matter what my complaint was, you know, if I said, well, Lord, I can't do it because of this, or Lord, I can't do it because of that, uh, they managed to kick it out from underneath uh, on my way to work. And so I finally said, okay, Lord, uh, you know, uh, this is not something that I would have chosen. Um, but if this is what you're calling me to do, I'll do it. And, uh, and I had, uh, you know, two other fellows that were interested in the nomination and, uh, I didn't campaign very hard against them. One fellow had to drop out because of his, his job. Um, and, uh, the other one, I, I, we had one debate between us, um, and they voted for me. The, the party elected me. Uh, yeah. Brian, I'm really interested, you know what, through that campaign and particularly from that election into the presidential election, were there any uh, signature campaign issues that you found voters really interested in? Like, wait, like you guys believe that? And is something that really, you, or things that you caught people? Well, I think people are generally pleased to see uh, a whole life approach to things. What do you uh, mean? In other words, the left, even when they are uh, supporting legalized abortion, uh, they are pleased to see opposition to abortion that says, but you know, it's not just outlawing it. We have to make sure that we are supporting uh, women who are in a problem pregnancy, uh, with whether it's with medical care or it's with uh, programs uh, that allow working mothers to have a safe place to put their kids while they're working. Uh, Whole Life says we want to do everything we can, not just to see the baby born, but to see the mother realize that she can take on raising that child uh, with a expectation of success. Uh, we wanna see strong families. Uh, and so we would prefer to see uh, intact uh, mother and father families, uh, but we realize that's not everybody's situation. And so we need to have some programs that will allow a woman in a problem pregnancy to lower the fear level. Most abortions uh, are, are the result of fear. And if we can work to lower the stress level, the fear level uh, of the unknown, of the, the enormous job it is to raise a child, but if we can lower that fear level, we will keep a lot of women from choosing abortion. A lot of women would really prefer to have a child. And it's the fact that they don't think they're ready or they can't handle the, the costs or, the, or whatever it is that they can't handle. It's the, the abortion is a result of fear. And so we do wanna see um, legal supports uh, against abortion, but we also wanna see help for a woman or a couple uh, that are feeling fearful of delivering that child. 
And so the, the, the liberals appreciate that. And the right wing, um, when, they, when they look at the big picture, are willing to, to see that as well. Yeah, I appreciate your articulation of that. It's really hard for me to understand. Uh, if you really are fervently pro-life, then, okay, well, what would you give for that? I've even been moved on things that I thought were previously immoral, but I'm now a big supporter of if it contributes to less uh, abortions, like the universal subsidy of contraceptives. Uh, now, I know that one will, you know, mess up. I think some Catholics feathers probably. Yeah, yeah, my, you know, my uh, groomsman who's studying to become a priest, but like, you know, that's just an example of something that I would go, well, you know, I hadn't previously considered that and would think it's still wrong. But for the greater good, and if it were to bring people to the table to uh, discuss more pro-life issues, then I, I would completely consider that. Um, okay, that, that's, that's a great example. I appreciate that. I mean, you know what, um, I imagine there's some just interested to know if there's any other ones that lit people's flames, like whether it be immigration. What, a, what an election year that this was you know, engendering. And so, or, you know, you mentioned with Reagan's economic policies that there was a bit of a di- disparity there. I guess it's been post-election, but with COVID, you know, we've seen the fortune of billionaires grow uh, tremendously while there's a lot of people that have been worried about their social social safety net. So I can only imagine that the the conditions for increased popularity of the ASP is, are increasing. Yeah. And of course, this last year has thrown everything into confusion. Uh, You know, for example, on the um, universal basic income. Uh, at the time our last uh, um, platform was written uh, in, uh, in 2019, uh, that was hardly on the radar. And it was, it was put on the radar. Um, um, Andrew Yang, something like that? Yeah, Andrew um, Yang. Uh, thank you. My mind was blanking out there, but Yang put it on the radar and it, it was not well enough accepted uh, so that he didn't get very far. But then we have COVID and immediately, uh, you know, we've got uh, stimulus packages that look a whole lot like a UBI. And suddenly people are saying, oh, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's it. So, you know, we have not had our, as a party, we have not had any official uh, reaction to that. But definitely the moment in time has changed. Uh, people are willing to, to look at some things that they would not even have looked at uh, at, at the beginning of uh, uh, 2016, certainly not in 2015. And I think, you know, as as Chase noted, too, that's at least in part because uh, I think I saw today like the eight richest people in the world are now worth over a trillion dollars. Right. Uh, So you see that in in comparison and contrast to the real material deprivations that people are facing in a crisis and the government's indifference to that. And I think a lot of people are looking for uh, different answers. Well, and particularly just in there, Brian, like love you here. Talk maybe a little bit about some of the the biblical supports for um, what the ASP believes, because one of the things that I'm working through myself are a lot of the seemingly unchristian, uh, not even unchristian, just 
as a disciple of Christ, ought I be having different thoughts about this, different feelings about this? And supposedly the moral majority is wrapped up in the Republican Party. And so I'm just, I'm frustrated and confused. Well, if you go back to, uh, to uh, the law uh, promulgated uh, by Moses from God, you know, the rules when they went into the land, there was not supposed to be uh, any generational poverty. You know, anybody who got in trouble and had to sell themselves into slavery, uh, there was a jubilee. You know, there was a seven-year and a, and a 50-year uh, return of ownership, uh, freedom from slavery, uh, return you know, you could not sell a piece of land beyond the Jubilee year, mm. uh, which meant that uh, you did not have the kind of generational poverty that that we have today. Interesting. Okay, so this is this is you're hitting on an interesting topic. So I thought you were going to go a different direction. You talk generational poverty. Um, you know, one of my conditions of really thinking, like, wow, maybe the government should do more. And I'd like you to hear speak on that. Is so the government has had some sins. Some, some, whether they be racist, whether they be sexist, whether they be classist, whatever. And while we may have confessed those sins or not, I don't know if we've fully repented of those sins and, and, and undone generational effects. So please continue. That's the conditions for which I'm listening. Yeah, and we don't. You know, we, it is messy. No matter how you look at it, it's messy. Um, for example, um, the, the law uh, forbid usury, uh, at least among Hebrews. You know, you could, you could charge interest of a foreigner, yeah. but not of, a, not of another Hebrew. Interest for those that don't know what usury is. Uh, yeah, you couldn't charge interest. And today, uh, you look at... Uh, you know, your, your typical credit card, what's it got an API of, uh, you know, 18% or more. Interest is the uh, foundation of America's economy. Yeah, it is. And it's not. Always has been. It's not an easy thing to, um, to undo. Uh, you know, my, my retirement is, is based in uh, California teacher retirement, which is uh, invested in uh, a wide variety of uh, things that I'm a little uncomfortable with. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I certainly appreciate my retirement. And, uh, and so we as a country have been um, powerfully involved in other countries' uh, economies, uh, to an extent that is uh, certainly questionable, if not outright immoral. For example, uh, I think that we were definitely behind the scenes in the um, in the overthrow of the elected government in uh, Bolivia, where uh, where you know the the right wing accused the government of of the election of irregularities but they were never able to really prove that i think they they simply took in and and it was a coup 
Um, and it was largely because of rare earth that is mined in Bolivia. And, uh, you know, if we are in our economy going to go to a, uh, an electric car system, electric cars, the batteries require rare earth. And so we are willing to overthrow governments uh, for our benefit some really immoral things. Uh, and yet obviously electric cars are important to keep global warming uh, to a minimum. You know, really complex things, trade-offs that are not easy. We just don't want to have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, Our, exactly. And I appreciate you, you saying uh, that about the uh, Bolivian. And for those listeners who don't know, this was in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Time is, uh, is an illusion these days. Um, but it was the oust of Evo Morales and they have returned his party to power after an actual legitimate election was held. Uh, but even people like Elon Musk, who owns Tesla and electric car company, and he was getting criticized online about being partially, at least partially responsible for the coup in Bolivia. He just replied with, we will coup anyone we want, which, uh, I think is very telling of the general attitude of American interests, American business. Well, you know, that's, that is very interesting because one of what we would, as a Christian, I think, Brian, we should consider our dark history or darker history in foreign policies. A lot of the uh, kicking over of governments and standing up of American friendly strongmen who were uh, not necessarily Christian and were not necessarily, weren't communist, but just were pro us enough to keep their people in check. Um, and so to hear that, that, you know, you reminding me of that done in our time span is, I don't know. So maybe that's a, that's a good opportunity, um, to hear a little bit more about the, uh, American solidarity Party's foreign policy stance. Yeah. If you are our role in the world, um, this is one, especially what I'm understanding from the ASP is they're really trying to have most of their platform, uh, ideas be biblically based. And I've heard a, uh, Christians foreign policy seemingly thrown with the political parties that they are aligned to, which is seemingly opportunist. So really interested to hear. Yeah, we, and we have the, the gamut within our party. We have those who are uh, absolutely pacifist in, in any situation. And we have others that are uh, more willing to, uh, put ourselves into positions, especially with, um, you know, a just war, you know, war is justified, especially if you are um, protecting innocence someplace uh, in our history that has often been used as an excuse uh, for simply uh, adventuristic mm. uh actions against uh, foreign countries. And so we really have to look at a situation. Nothing is ever easy in, in politics. You know, right now, um, it is very, very likely uh, that uh, China is preparing to invade Taiwan. And, uh, you know, so we're, we need to kind of look and say, all right, what would we do? And it's not easy. I mean, we promised 
uh, Taiwan, uh, about the time I was born, uh, that we would protect them. We would stand in. And, and yet, at what point do we say, well, you know, are we ready for nuclear war? Uh, and again, uh, we want to help uh, a horrible situation with the Uyghurs right now. Um, genocide. And every time there has been genocide, uh, you know, we say, well, we can't let that happen again. Mm. But are we ready to... Um, Where are we going to get all our stuff from? Yeah, uh, we are so <laughs> tied up there. And we have such a uh, sketchy history ourselves. You know, we, we say, well, China, you should not have uh, done this to the Uyghurs. And China says, well, you should not have done that to the Native Americans. Uh, some of which was still going on in, in my lifetime. So, um, you know, we are, the Bible says, um, you know, don't speak to your brother until you get the log out of your own eye. And so I think the very first thing we have to do in, in all of those is make sure we get the log out of our own eye. Uh, and we need to make sure that as we go about a foreign policy, uh, you know, we, we have taken care of our own uh, inappropriate actions. Uh, we need to make sure that we have created a just society, uh, that we are not relegating any racial group to second-class citizenship, uh, that we are not involved in uh, foreign wars because of our appetite for oil. Um, you know, until we can, can right our own ship, we were on real shaky ground uh, in, in telling other people what they can or can't do. And yet we do have, you know, we have commitments uh, to Taiwan. We have commitments to Japan. We have commitments to South Korea um, that, you know, we're, we're in a very awkward situation. And I don't know what the, I don't know if there is a solution. We are faced with some situations where there is no good answer. And uh, I realized that politicians are not supposed to say that. You know, politicians are supposed to say, I have a, a solution. Um, but if you go back, for example, in Germany in the 1920s, uh, the honest politicians were saying there is no answer. There is no solution to this. And one guy stood up and said, well, I have a solution. Vote for me. And, and Hitler didn't say what his solution was, but he convinced enough people that he had a solution that they voted for him. And that's, that's a dangerous, you know, when you, when you vote for a politician who says he's got an answer, but he won't tell you what it is, you're in serious trouble. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really where this country found themselves in 2020, uh, or 2016, rather, um, and 2020 in ways. 
But, you know, I mean, you literally had Trump saying, I am the only person who can fix your problems without really any. I mean, he, that was the exact and I'm pretty sure an exact quote. Um, and when you're faced with that versus, well, things are complicated. And yeah, I'm the, you know, in, in the case of Hillary Clinton, like, oh, yeah, I'm the most experienced person for the job to handle these complicated issues. And you have on the other side, Trump saying, well, they're not complicated, actually, and I just am going to handle them. Um, and so that's it's it, it, we do find ourselves in a very difficult position. But I think that's largely due to the competing interests or contradictory interests of the, the two parties. So why exact how exactly do you think a third party could sort of break through that and 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 if not, you know, gain actual power? Uh, you know, in ways like just shake up the establishment. And so there's, there's room for, uh, for difference. Well, first of all, uh, as a third party, one of the things that we have accomplished is we have uh, brought people into the electorate who were not voting. Uh, people who had, you know, people in their 30s who had never voted uh, because they could not stomach either of the other parties, uh, said, oh, hey, I can vote for you. And so we always want to try and increase voter participation. Uh, all of the, even the parties right now that are trying to restrict voter registration and participation uh, are mouthing the fact that they want to increase voter participation. Uh, and we actually did. The American Solidarity Party brought a lot of people out to vote who simply had not voted before. And so we accomplished one of our goals right there. Uh, secondly, we gave people a choice. You know, people who felt bound up in the duopoly, like there were only two choices, uh, we allowed them to say, hey, you know what, there's, there's more than that. And we can, we can vote our conscience. You know, if you are voting between two things that you don't like and you vote for uh, something you don't want and, and you win, have you really won? You know, the worst vote is a vote for something you don't want. And we've seen that, for example, there was a group of uh, pro-life, uh, I don't know if they were all Christians or, or who all was in there, but they were, they were pro-life people who announced in the last couple of weeks before the election that they were going to vote for Biden. And they have since uh, expressed that they're very sorry they did. Uh, they thought that they could somehow convince Biden to soften his pro-abortion stance and they failed. And, uh, and so we are in a position where people who couldn't vote for either of the other two could in good conscience vote for us. And, uh, and then the, the other thing is a third party, when it becomes more attractive and, and the major parties start to see, uh, people moving in that direction, uh, that will cause some parties to change their, their positions. For example, 
uh, Ross Perot in the 90s uh, ran on a platform of uh, balanced budget. And, uh, you know, he, he, I don't think got more than like about 19% of the vote anywhere. Uh, but he shook up the other two parties. And so for the next uh, 10, 12 years, both of the other parties paid more attention to the balanced budget issue. And so even without being elected, uh, he was effective in making that a, an issue that people paid attention to. Wow. Well, that's, that's very interesting. I think, I think that's, that's definitely true of third parties um, and, and sort of the influence they can have. So that said, what do you see as next for you and for the American Solidarity, Solidarity Party? Can we uh, get a commitment that you're running in 2024? Or is that, oh. still, is that still far off? Okay. I, I do not believe that a third party should be built around one personality. You know, you, you look at the parties, the Ross Perot party or the, the Bull Moose party and Teddy Roosevelt. And they became so much about one personality that they did not survive that, that personality. And so I have told the party, I am not going to run uh, in 2024. I will not be the candidate. And I want them to develop some other talent. Uh, hopefully some younger talent. I'm, I'm 71 right now. Uh, but we are running uh, candidates in local races. Uh, we had one last week in a special election in Wisconsin. Uh, we have one today. Uh, there's an election for a, a New Hampshire state legislature and it was a special election. And so that one is today. And we have a candidate in that that uh, I have some high hopes for. I think he he's may do very well. We'll uh, link the campaign websites to the show notes here so people can you know check them out. I actually saw the New Hampshire one, <clears throat> uh, orange color for the American Solidarity Party. And if you compare uh, the Republican versus Democrat, it's almost as stereotypical as it gets. I mean, what you would think uh, a Democrat is standing for is, you know, this candidate where the Republican, you know, traditional small government, low taxes, and then you have somebody, you know, a third color on there that says, hey, literally it's just a biblical outline of the issues affecting um, that county or, or that district. So, yeah, and I feel like uh, New Hampshire is enough of kind of a political anomaly that uh, it's, it, it has more opportunity for candidates with divergent ideas to have success. You know, it's really interesting, Brian. Uh, I'm, uh, we brought on the CEO of My Faith Votes, and you know what? Maybe we can connect with some of your candidates uh, with that uh, machine, particularly on the local elections, to really get volunteers to turn out. Um, I think number one, I'd be certainly willing to vote for and support and volunteer for a third-party candidate um, that I have as much disagreement with as a Republican or Democratic candidate, because I think like you articulated, there's a certain goodness in a, in a third party candidate that, that we need and has a good impact on. Yeah. Um, the, the candidate in, uh, um, in New Hampshire and, uh, I'm, it's Stephen Holland and I forget the last syllable. Uh, but he's a real creative guy, uh, for his campaign flyers. 
he put three columns, uh, one for each of the three candidates. And he actually took positive information off of the websites of the other two candidates. And he, he let the other two candidates um, look at the flyer before he published it to, to make sure that he had everything accurate. Um, but, you know, talk about being a, a, a good sport and trying to create a, a healthy climate. Um, yeah. Th- th- that was really remarkable. And, um, and he, uh, uh, I saw the, the TV uh, news report that, you know, 90 second blurb on the campaign. Uh, and they interviewed each of the candidates so each candidate got, you know, maybe 10, 15 seconds to say something. Um, and then the, uh, the newscaster held up the flyer that Stephen had put together. Uh, you know, so it got attention. Uh, so like I say, I'm really excited uh, to see how he does today. And uh, we will have candidates uh, in, in a number of races next year uh, here in California. Uh, we're looking at a recall of our governor, and uh, I, I'm not going to announce who our candidate is, but we will have one uh, in that race. We actually have a lot of people who come looking and find us. Mm. You know, the, the level of dissatisfaction with the duopoly means that a lot of people are doing research. Mm. Uh, a lot of people found us through the website, uh, you know, I side with where uh, you go to the website and you, you know, take a uh, poll or a list of questionnaire, a list of issues, and it tells you who you line up with. And a lot of people took that poll, took that questionnaire, and it said that they lined up with the American Solidarity Party. And they went, well, who are those people? And that's how they found us. Uh, but I was just going to say my sense is that like it would almost be is, is it an equal amount of maybe disaffected former Bernie people and Republicans dissatisfied with Trump as a candidate? Is that kind of what you're hearing? Well, we've gotten people uh, from all all sides uh, and we do. We have some people who, uh, if there was no American Solidarity Party, might wind up as libertarians. We have some that would wind up as socialists. We have some that, um, you know, would would line up uh, peace and freedom or, or green or, you know, we have all people from a wide spectrum. Uh, the one thing that unites all of us is uh, we're pro-life. Uh, and we, uh, we've, see that play out in different ways in different people's life as to what's most important, you know, and for some people, uh, you cannot be pro-life if you are also not, uh, anti-war pacifist. Uh, there are some people who believe that you cannot be pro-life if you are not also, uh, um, climate activist, um, so there's some disagreement within the party on various things. What that means exactly to be pro-life. interesting. Yeah. There's a real yeah, emphasis on pro-life. Right. You know what? That's, that's, that might be. Okay. I, that, that helps me understand it a lot really well. You know, pro-life is pro-earth, pro-life of the earth, pro-life of immigrants and their rights. 
human rights, pro, you know, uh, life of uh, and quality of life of mother child. Okay. And there are some issues appealing to a large swath of Americans. Yeah, there are some issues that uh, there's still a lot of disagreement on. Uh, We have people who believe that you cannot be pro-life and and take, you know, uh, be strongly uh, in favor of uh, gun control. And we have other people who say you cannot be pro-life if you are uh, not supportive of of Second Amendment rights. Um, You know, that's one issue where we are all over the place. There is no common agreement because different people evaluate which position is pro-life and and everybody, no matter what they come up with on that, uh, believes that their position is the pro-life issue. So there's an issue where we don't take a, a, a position individual candidates can, uh, but our platform has no statement on that simply because we have no agreement on that. Shucks, I I don't mind that, especially on things that have been used, I think, to distract us from other real pro-life issues where Mm -hmm. you got people getting hot and bothered about gun rights, which I care about, but there are other issues that are forgotten and end up seemingly in the hands of uh, the people who write the laws. Mm-hmm. Or fi- finance the writing of the laws. So, yeah. okay. Um, uh, Brian, we'd love to make sure all this is linked up and then push this out on everything. Uh, Cyrus, do you have any other questions for him? You know, I mean, sure. But um, I think that, that that'll definitely do it for, for this time. I really appreciate you coming on, Brian. It was uh, really interesting, eye-opening to me, even though I am a socialist. Uh, as we talked about sort of uh, in the prelude to this conversation, I think that that still means that there's quite a bit end state wise we would like to see. Uh, so, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more in, in all that, but I'll be, uh, I'll be following your party and uh, the news and, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. Well, Chase and Cyrus, I have enjoyed uh, this conversation and uh, best of success with the, uh, with your podcast. Uh, and I hope that uh, maybe we can talk again sometime other. Thank you, sir. God bless you very much. Thanks for coming, Brian. Okay, Cyrus. Wow. A lot going on there. Let's just bang back and forth and talk takeaways and things that we want to take forward with us um, in future conversations, just because there are some key things that I wrote down that are underappreciated at least for the ASP and maybe needs to be considered in just our own political platforms personally going forward. Yeah. Kind of, you know, everything that he was talking about is pretty salient to the kind of conversations we have. And every issue was either, you know, I probably agree with him on that standpoint and you might be a little bit more skeptical or or vice versa. Uh, But the thing I think we can both empathize with the most, and maybe a lot of people who listen to this show is and what stuck out to me right away is the fact that he was a 35 year Republican voter in his own words, um, who in 2016 uh, joined the Democratic Party specifically to vote for Bernie Sanders in the primary. Uh, and that kind of, I think, sets the tone for one, the reason the party he you know, started to help form and, and was a nominee for. 
uh, it came into existence in the first place, but also just, I think, speaks to the uh, lack of options uh, most people feel like they have with uh, what he called the du- duopoly. Yeah, I figured that would be a key takeaway for you and axe to grind. You know what, if we want to talk Republicans or Democrats of why Donald Trump won, probably because Bernie Sanders didn't run against him. Um, so, yeah, that that was it, it. The media definitely paints Bernie as someone only socialist millennials had a, a preference for. But Brian Carroll sort of flies in the face of that. Uh, next big takeaway for me, man, was that uh, Brian Carroll and the uh, Pelicans were the OGs of the universal basic income. Um, I think he said that was on the books and party platform in 2019. And I think the first time I really heard it go mainstream was Andrew Yang in Democratic primary. So I thought it was just fascinating that um, that's something that they wrote into policy from their Christian beliefs. And as they see sort of times changing, I, I enjoyed seeing that. Yeah, and we've actually seen the Democratic Party itself more or less take up a a sort of pseudo or semi UBI policy since the pandemic has started. I mean, really, the whole U.S. government with stimulus checks and uh, more generous unemployment benefits, which has seen the biggest reduction in poverty like since the Great Society. So I'm not the biggest UBI fan. I think that that has some problems and and definitely... um, I think I think it's a little bit more nuanced than just giving people money uh, to to solve the issues this country faces. Uh, but definitely, I think you know, just even talking about that, bringing that into the conversation, um, has uh, has influenced things. Whether it was him specifically or his party, I don't know. But I can't speak to that. But it definitely is uh, something that's in the ether and in the sort of the unconscious of the United States right now. Next up for me was his acknowledgement of the economic realities or pressures of abortion. Uh, traditional Republicans, as I see it, want to slap a illegal sign on this and almost like making uh, drinking illegal or a, like a tobacco secession program. But I think he's more on the like, let's attack the demand side of this. Let's try to make people uh, or help people. And this is one of the reasons for UBI not feel the pressure, not feel the fear through support. And I think churches would say, oh, that's the church's job. Well, yeah, but like we also have systemic poverty and, you know, a lot of generational issues here that maybe the, the government's better equipped to, to, to get at. And so I really like that. And that would fly in the face of a lot of popular Christian politicians and or, you know, Christian NGOs. Um, and I think I'm for that, man. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean, and to expand on that a little bit, like obviously that uh, being pro-life is not my motivation uh, specifically to um, to support, you know, economically redistributive and, and materially uh, beneficial policies to working people. But his his definition of pro-life well, on is that note, much- and I- I know I'm interrupting you, but like it should be, man. Like, I, you know what I mean? So just consider that in the future. That is a good reason to be for that. No, it's I'm not saying it's reasons. not. And what I mean is to is specifically is like, but his definition of pro-life 
is definitely more it is why I, I believe that or at least the one that he sort of you know outlined in the show which is to say you know pro-life in every circumstance um and always looking for a way to preserve and protect and safeguard a good ha- happy life for you know the people that that this government is supposed to be sworn to, to do that for um and that even expands which i was a little surprised to hear uh to to beyond the united states's borders and in his orientation towards foreign policy which is light years light years ahead and it's not even that you know radical in my opinion certainly not as radical as i'd like it but it's light years ahead of what either the democratic or republican party offers uh the you know average american citizen yeah, I thought he was saying, uh, in essence, like we shouldn't check our Christian values and or our uh, like command goal to emulate Christ at the border, especially when we go defend American interests. And that's been one I've struggled with thinking like, oh, OK, well, we have a stewardship responsibility over our government and we should therefore do as much as we can for our own people. But like at what point do we go, hey, listen, like we're not willing to topple governments in the favor of like our own you know, a regional hegemony or something like that. I don't, I don't know, but it takes a lot of moral courage, the likes of which haven't been talked about. Like, I don't know, man, not even my lifetime. I'm talking like, you know, hundred years. Yeah. So, well, you know, I think the example he brought up specifically at the very beginning of the, of that portion of the conversation, talking about Bolivia and, and the coup that was, uh, you know, attempted um, in the last couple of years in that country and the, the people who benefited from that coup were as varied as Elon Musk, who has, you know, lithium interests, which help fund his electric cars and and the green energy movement in general, um, you know, is interested in the natural resources that exist in that country. And at the same time, the people who attempted and, and succeeded at first in that coup were far right hardcore evangelical uh, political faction of the country. And so for a Christian, you know, who has at, was at least running for president uh, to say something like to, to look both of those parties in the eyes and say, this is wrong. This is not the proper way to do things. And America should not have any part in encouraging or supporting that type of behavior. I mean, that's, that's a total, uh, opposite end of the spectrum from what we see as the state yeah you know what not your, your your morality and your faith isn't just judged by your domestic laws and policies and, and culture but how you you know work at work how you gamble at the casino how you you know treat people to shopping mart and so to a nation so I, I, I enjoyed that. You know what, just to kind of hop back though, maybe one of my last takeaways was really in connection with the sort of the UBI and economic reality of abortion. I just, for me, for him to say it um, was fascinating. It's like this idea of a jubilee or- Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. yeah I thought, I thought forgiveness every 50 years. And for folks who um, aren't familiar with what jubilee is, it's not like the queen's 50th you know, diamond uh, anniversary in, in rule. It's a command that God gave the Jewish people, I think in Leviticus, Leviticus in the 20s range. And it was basically every 50 years, uh, all debt is forgiven. And like it basically. It's like every, uh, something like every seven, like some debt is forgiven or like personal debts or something like that. That is right. Yeah. There are some that go inside with like the resting of the land, but every 50 years, like all bets are off. And that's really fascinating, especially in the face of like chattel slavery and of like, you know, generations of slavery and or even like 
the passing on of debt from uh, one generation to another, you know, like we've kind of talked about that recently. You know, yeah, I mean? it's amazing how much that word has been distorted and, and sort of the power of language, you know, evident very much so there. But yeah, I mean, that Jubilee and then he mentioned usury, if I'm not mistaken, too. Um, both things which, you know, debt and interest are the things that totally facilitate the American economy and the world economy, the global economy. And biblically, there's really not a lot of evidence to support those things. And in fact, there's quite a bit of evidence to say those things are bad. And, and and immoral. I don't want to get on to saying all that. I'd have to fact check my stuff. I'm pretty sure um, it's just not charging brothers in excessive interest uh, and, you know, taking advantage of foreigners, those sort of things. Right, so right. Um, and I, I know think, it's meant to be rules between people of the same faith and, and what well, and or, you know, the same town. And, you know, you don't have a central banking institution besides like the monarch. So but if um, anything, I, Christianity extends that covenant to the Jewish people, to all people. Uh, it does yes now mind you um paul's and and jesus very clear like you know what hey i get new command i give you love others as i have loved you that's jesus or paul the entire law is summarized in you know this statement love your neighbor as yourself um so christians basically go okay we can wash away a lot of those commands but i do find a little bit of a hypocrisy that i haven't quite nailed down to say like hey um we we, we should make moral laws like making like um, abortion illegal in, in the defense of life and unborn and unadvocated uh, life. But we shouldn't go ahead and help people out of systemic poverty. To me, it gets a little like water down there. So his uh, convictions are pushing me along on this journey. And so I just really appreciated him. And uh, Brian, thank you. And then, you know what, we'll share the ASP in the next election. And so is Cato. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, all that to say, like, I, as much as I liked a lot of things he talked about, especially in the paradigm that we currently experience with the Republicans and Democrats, neither of which I can even stomach supporting really materially in any way. Um, but at the same time, this is this sort of gets to my own personal political views. And you look at something like the Christian Democratic parties in Europe and South America, which did start out with, you know, for their country and their societies with radical social views, um, you know, that, that supported radical redistribution. But as long as you maintain that market focus, you know, like they have in Europe, um, those, that radicalism, that commitment to, to true social justice, rather than just, uh, you know, moral justice, things like social issues. But uh, if you lose, if, if you're still trapped by that system, it's much harder to change the economic situation and economic system than it is to change moral laws and rules. And I feel like that's where they always end up. But that said, I will keep an eye out for them. Um, and I will, uh, you know, keep, keep an open mind. Uh, I'm always willing to support someone who, who supports the same things I do. So I'm much more emboldened to vote for a candidate in the ASP than one I can't support in either party going forward. So I think yeah, what I will what I give to, to the ASP is they're not an evil organization. So uh, they have that <laughs> going for them, at least not yet. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we will, uh, we'll see, but. May God um, keep them pure and else, bless their future that, candidates. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have anything else, I think that pretty much sums uh, my thoughts on the episode, but uh, we'll you know what? Uh, we had uh, Brian on. Yeah. To give you guys a sneak peek, uh, Cyrus and I are, diving into a few books he's finished the jakarta method so i'm going to start that one here soon but we're also working on jesus and john wayne how uh white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation 
Um, so be on the lookout for that. We might just uh, have some a future conversation on it. Yeah, yeah. If you are looking for a book to read, maybe check out one of those too, and you'll probably get a little uh, extra analysis from us sometime in the next month or so. So all that to say, thanks for listening. And uh, uh, please tell your friends, um, subscribe to our podcast, uh, share it on social media if you're willing. Um, I won't beg, but I will plead. So, um. <laughs> and you know what, Cyrus, this weekend we did have a good conversation in reference to Colossians. Some, since it's one such a short book, maybe we let that shortcut in front of the uh, Gospels as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one more note on the programming. We will be back to a regularly scheduled version of it starting next week. Now we've been a little bit spotty, but uh, otherwise, yeah. Love you, man. Talk to you soon. Love you, dude. Bye-bye. He acts, he dies, but principles are eternal. And this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother, father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs and uh, look forward to seeing you next time.